Welcome to another episode of Technicolor Jesus, a podcast where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. In today's episode, Matt and I are catching fly balls, twisting and shouting, and joyriding through suburban Chicago. Today, we take up a love offering for our favorite dying son. Today, we discuss Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. My name is Matt. I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We take turns picking movies that are supposed to be relevant to our work as ministers. Last time we were together, Matt decided we had to go watch John Hughes's Ferris Bueller's Day Off. So that's what we've done. In our first segment today, Justification by Faith, I'm going to ask Matt to defend his pick. Why does Ferris Bueller's Day Off matter for the work of the church? And in our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Ferris Bueller for the lectionary week ahead, which will be year C, June 19th, the fifth Sunday after Pentecost, Ordinary 12. Finally, we'll offer up some postludes, some stray theological thoughts from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Matt, let me tell you a story. Okay. A discontented young man feels thoroughly depressed about his life, so unhappy he can barely function and is constantly sick. One day, another, more charismatic young man enters into his life accompanied by a woman. This charismatic man leads him, against his better judgment, into experiences that he would never have sought out otherwise. Finally, through circumstances where the symbols of the sad man's unhappiness are destroyed, real contentment is finally found. Of course, this is the story of Fight Club. Adam, I thought we weren't supposed to talk about Fight Club. <laughs> but, Matt, before Fight Club, there is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, which is more or less the same movie. Now, Ferris is the star of this movie, and Matthew Broderick is a truly great in it, a force, really. But this movie is about Cameron, right? The movie's not very interesting if it's just about Ferris executing this plan and then never learning any lessons in the meantime. The movie works because Cameron is its heart and soul. Cameron learns something because of Ferris, but Ferris is just the catalyst. And the catalyst, at least to my mind, is never as, in, as interesting as the transformation. So Matt, justify your pick. Love Ferris. Why does Ferris Bueller's day off matter for the work of the church? Well, I'm fully in agreement with you that I think this is Cameron's movie. And I fully agree with you that if, if it weren't for Cameron's transformation, this movie wouldn't have any kind of character arc to it. So I, I want to get at what Cameron learns. And then perhaps maybe there's something for us to learn in there, too. Just because just from the very sheer title of the film, I kind of want to go into this by talking about Sabbath. I mean, this is a movie about a day off. So let's talk about Sabbath. Historically, we have thought about Sabbath as that strict day off in the life of the church, the, the Sunday, the Lord's Day, however you conceive of it. Well, one of the pushes in scholarship on Sabbath over the last generation has been to kind of reconceptualize Sabbath as having some more theological teeth to it and having some call on us, especially as we so increasingly suck at actually letting Sunday be a down day. The, the massive scholar of the Old Testament, Walter Brueggemann, has written in his, his book, Sabbath is Resistance, that part of the Sabbath isn't just kind of downtime that we elect, that the, the theological stake at Sabbath is about our relationship with God, and it's about our relationship with God's grace. So I'm, I'm getting back to the movie, but just bear with me for a second here, that, you know, in, in the wilderness, uh, Israel is called into sabbath which is about its trust in yahweh that yahweh will provide through manna that yahweh will provide through israel's sojourn in the new testament we have um this language of trusting in the abundance of god and the abundance of jesus christ as in uh, luke's gospel do not worry about what your life what you about your life about what you will eat and drink etc it's about sabbath is about granting some space and time in our lives for grace to do its work and i think about this in our churches where we are so overprogrammed, our churches at the same time with that programming comes a lot of anxiety. It comes a lot of stress, comes a lot of um, 
running around in frenzy, and I wonder what it means for us to trust in the provision of God. Maybe it just means taking a day off. I think uh, it's interesting that, you know, Harry Emerson Fosdick conceived of Riverside Church as a church that does ministry seven days a week. And I think we're reaping that idea now with these over-anxious and over-programmed churches, which is uh, at the very beginning of his conception, it ignores the idea of Sabbath. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and I, I, I think we will probably circle in and through that, but I, I don't want us to lose the movie before we get too far down this road. So let me, let me come back to Cameron for a second. This is absolutely Cameron's story, and I would argue that this movie is about how Cameron finally learns to let some grace work in his life. Now, there is no doubt, at least in my mind, that Ferris Bueller is kind of a jerk. He's, you know, he's obnoxious, he um, is manipulative, but I think in his relationship with Cameron, we also see him embodying a kind of grace that is uncomfortable and disarming, to be sure, that is charismatic and unrelenting, that is, in Calvin's language, irresistible, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and and it's, but it's grace that needs, so to speak, a vehicle through which to do its good work. He needs a car. So Cameron becomes then in this relationship the, the 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 center who is in a state of grace, who who learns to be in a state of grace. He is afraid of everything, but he becomes empowered. And over the course of the film, he becomes liberated becomes liberated from his own internal captivity that we see at the beginning. I mean, he sings to himself, for God's sake, you know, when Cameron was in Egypt land, let my Cameron go. And then at the end, having experienced this liberation, he can make a stand. He gets to the car scene at the end, which is the pivotal moment of this movie. It makes the movie work. So I, I think one of the ways in which the film is talking about Sabbath is then it's it's not just this day off, it's this opportunity to experience God's grace in such a way that now we're transformed and now new things are possible and now we are freed of the constraints that we put on ourselves. And the result of that is that the whole community flourishes, not just Cameron. I mean, one of the things Brueggemann talks about is, is Sabbath as an experience of a community and for the flourishing of a whole community, of an interrelated community. And I think that comes out in this film in the no in no greater point than in the parade sequence where you have Bueller who is still admittedly a jerk but who has given the city this amazing moment together Sabbath is restorative for a for a whole order so that's kind of where I've been bouncing around with this and I think it, it leads us to lots of different kinds of potential conversations but that's that's where I am Adam what about you did this film stir anything for you or or was it just kind of you know, an unsatisfying retro trip to the 80s. No, it did stir in, in me. And I had forgotten how much I appreciate Cameron. And I think Alan Ruck does an amazing job in this movie, uh, embodying someone with real existential angst and born of some real trauma. Watching this movie was a little like reading A Catcher in the Rye recently for me, which is a book that I had watched when I was, or a book that I had read when I was young. Like Ferris Bueller, I watched when I was young. And The Catcher in the Rye is an interesting book because Holden Caulfield comes off sort of entitled and awful. But really, it's a book about grief. It's a book about how a young man copes with the death of his brother. And similarly, watching this movie, this side of adulthood, I see Ferris Bueller as a movie about how a young man copes with his relationship with his father. Absolutely. Even though the father is nowhere to be found and is only obliquely referenced in some of the same ways like in Catcher in the Rye where the brother is only obliquely referenced, uh, but is the source of so much pain, trauma, and angst. And so there's this moment, and I think it connects back to what you were talking about with Sabbath, where they attend the Art Institute of Chicago. And so one of the 
great charms of this movie is that it's also a love letter to Chicago. You and I have spent a lot of time in New York and Los Angeles looking at movies. And this is the first time that I think we've arrived in Chicago. And John Hughes, who grew up in Chicago, as well as in Gross Point, Michigan, which is why Cameron wears a uh, the Red Wings jersey instead of a Blackhawks jersey. He, Hughes, loves Chicago. And so make sure that the, the crew, Cameron, Sloan, and Ferris, find their way to the various different beautiful parts of it. So they stand at the top of the Sears Tower. They go to Wrigley Field. They go downtown. They... Um, they spend time at Lake Michigan after Cameron goes into a catatonic state. Um, and then they go to the Art Institute of Chicago. And I think this is where Ferris Bueller um, becomes a great movie because it's really willing to risk this small sabbatical, so to speak, this moment of Sabbath, even in the movie, yeah. where it stops being a movie that's sort of driving even the music changes mm-hmm. the musical cue is so so beautiful too i love yeah, this sequence it, it's such a lovely sequence and it takes time to just look at static pieces of art i mean there are frames where ferris and sloan and cameron aren't even present it's just pieces of art and meanwhile at the they enter into the art museum at, almost as children. So they, they hook hands with this line of children and you get the sense that they're sort of goofing. But then they end divorced where Ferris and Sloan are having a tender moment of what seems like real love in front of this stained glass. And then Cameron is looking at this Surratt painting um that was that's huge and um indicative of the pointillist style of the time and as he looks closer and closer and closer this child at the center of the painting is staring out at him and it the child begins to dissolve almost as if it's not even there any longer and all that's left are these small little dabs and dots of paint and you see in cameron this beautiful moment of feeling like he's wasting away that he is on the verge of not existing any longer almost as if this child in the painting is also on the verge of not existing and in it i think that there is something to be said about sabbath there too which is it's in those moments where you can marshal your attention where you have found time and space in fact delineated time and space to marshal your attention towards who you are and who god is and so to gather from another scholar who's talked so much about sabbath from abraham joshua heschel he says sabbath is also a time where you recommit to your understanding of god in the world it's not a time to do nothing it's a time for study as well and that study comes from marshalling attention um, backwards in time trying to understand where you've noticed god in the week while also recommitting yourself to the vocation at hand going forward and so i love that moment in the uh the art museum because it comes about halfway through and i think it is that moment of looking backwards and looking forwards. So, I mean, even Ferris in that says, before that says, I want to marry you to Sloan. And then it's only later in the movie that she says, I'm going to marry him. But I think they need that moment in the art museum to catalyze that actual commitment. So I love that museum sequence a lot. And I was... I. I feel like I've rewatched that sequence more than almost anything else. And the thing that struck me about it this time as I was watching, and I, and I, I think you're right to see the kind of the ways in which the, the past and the future converge on it a little bit. What, what I noticed is um, that he stares into the, the face of that child in the Surat painting, and it zooms in the child is, is crying, right? I mean, it zooms into the child's mouth as the child is, is crying, presumably for mom or dad. Uh, and until you get to the the points that dissolve, 
Uh, and then 30 minutes later in the film, after they have seen the odometer on the car and how much mileage they've put on it, the camera cuts and it's into the blackness in Cameron's mouth, right? And zooms back out from the screaming Cameron uh, after he has seen the, the damage that he can't undo. I just thought that was a really interesting kind of visual parallel that we've broken Cameron down to his most constitutive parts and only after he kind of um, can lament and anguish over the, the damage to the car and the, the fact that his relationship with his father is now going to, to cross a boundary that he's never had to cross before, then we can kind of zoom out from him and begin to put him back together again. At which point he goes and gets baptized. I mean, if you wanted to read it really heavily, but I'm not sure we want to go that far. Right. And and I think I, it's interesting to then contrast Cameron's journey of self-realization and uh, position within the larger social structure of the world uh, with Ferris's sister's, mm. Jeannie's position. Uh, Cameron is at enmity with himself in many ways but precipitated within a social and family structure that uh doesn't allow him to fully embody all parts of himself genie has a sibling rivalry going on and i we don't see any other siblings in this movie i don't cameron doesn't have a brother or a sister as far as we know and sloan is never referenced as having one either but ferris has to do battle with Jeannie and really it's Jeannie doing battle with Ferris it doesn't seem like Ferris has a lot of care about what his sister does except that he is jealous of her car well and he she's the the older brother working in the field right I mean right yes <laughs> so Ferris goes off and and squanders the family fortune how much does he drop throughout the course of the day on what, like, let's just put this in parentheses, is the most wholesome day off in Chicago that you could possibly take? Like, I, right. I, and I know part of that is that they want to show off the great parts of the city, but, like, I would be proud to have a kid who skipped school to go to the Art Museum, Art Institute of Chicago in a Cubs game. Like, I, I just, let's, right. let's, let's be very clear on this point. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, he's off in the distant land squandering the father's fortune, and, and she's working in the fields. Although she's not, she doesn't go to class. She doesn't go to class any more than Ferris does. She seems, seems to spend the movie wandering the hallways being pissed off at her brother until she skips to go home. Uh, and so she's... She, she's bitter that he that she has to follow the rules and he doesn't, even though she doesn't seem to follow them either. Right, and and the catalyst for change that she experiences, rather than Ferris being the catalyst for change within Cameron's life, it's strangely Charlie Sheen. Yeah, a disheveled Charlie Sheen who takes is on there another. Is there another kind of Charlie Sheen <laughs> who takes on this like almost Zen? Um, yeah. Cohen type of speaking. Um, he he's able to help her to recognize, uh, not just grace for her brother, but um, contentment. Yeah. Str- strangely, I I mean, he says at one point, "Why should you care what he does?" And then looks at her and says, "Your problem is you." Which, of course it is. It, uh, most of my problems are me. Most of my problems are you too, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, well, that's, a, that's the point. Is I think most of people's problems are me too. And there is something totally self-centered about that. And, again, to move back to the Sabbath part, part of the Sabbath is to show us that the world does not begin and end with us. It doesn't Absolutely. revolve around us. It can go on without us. And so it is designed to displace our self-centeredness and replace it with the presence of God at the center and to remember and to recognize and to look out for all of those ways in which the world does not work or exist or turn without 
the spirit of God initiating it. And so even Jeannie begins to figure this out. I wonder if the only person who doesn't figure out the sort of solution to their own problems is Rooney, who goes on this quest born of some very strange motivation. And you never really quite get the sense of what is driving that motivation. He he is the worst public school administrator ever. Or the best. Or the best. <laughs> but but he's dedicated. He, I guess. Yeah, so dedicated that he's willing to break into people's <laughs> houses. Uh, so I, I, I look at Rooney and think, man, what is it in you that gets so teed off that Ferris has missed nine days? Okay, nine days in the grand scheme of things is not that many, but it's enough to cause this person to commit grand larceny. Well, so this actually, this ties in a little bit to where I'm going with um, the scripture for this coming up Sunday. And so I think it might be a good time for us to transition a little bit. And then I can talk a little bit about about Rooney. Is that all right? Yeah, let's do it. So let's move to preaching. The, The second segment of our show is called Preaching to the Choir. And it's where we look at the lectionary passages for year C, June 19th, the fifth Sunday after Pentecost. We have Elijah and the still small voice of God. We have Paul's letter to the Galatians and his description of the law. We have Jesus and the Gerasene demoniac. And we have Isaiah's oracle about the coming judgment. We also have some psalms that seem to echo the cries of Elijah and the demoniac. Uh, So Matt, Rooney, the lectionary passages of the week. Where is Ferris leading you? So I want to talk about... Uh, Rooney and Jeannie and the Galatians passage, uh, wherein um, before Christ, the law was our disciplinarian, but after Christ, we are under grace. I'm I'm wading into some big New Testament theology waters here, and I'm not going to do it justice in five minutes. Let me talk about Rooney and Jeannie for a second, because I think Rooney and Jeannie are, are the are the matched pair in this film, not so much Jeannie, even necessarily Jeannie and her brother. Um, I think uh, Rooney is what happens if Jeannie w- grows up and does not um, come to herself and does yeah. not have this moment of self-realization with yeah, Charlie Sheen in the police station. Um, I also think Rooney is Javert. Uh, so uh, <laughs> I, I, I think Rooney is Javert from Les Mis, who is the the police agent tracking down Jean Valjean, who has stolen a loaf of bread to feed his starving wife and family. Javert in pursuit of the law and in the attempt to satisfy the law becomes more or less an agent of evil. I I think Rooney channels that same insistence. Rooney has a sense that people should be in class, students should be in class, students who don't go to class are violating the rules of class, they're violating the laws by being truant, and that satisfying those laws is, is his job as a public administrator. Uh, and so he goes on this relentless quest to satisfy the law. Uh, in the passage, we have Paul trying to wrestle with what the what the historical role of the law has been uh, for the children of God prior to and in the, and after the, their relationship with Jesus Christ. This this line that the quote the law was our disciplinarian, which seems like Rooney just on the surface. Um, we have some historically kind of not entirely satisfying exegesis of this passage. One is to argue that uh, under Christ, the law now no longer applies at all, that the history of God goes first law and then Christ and then none, never the two shall pass. Or that we have this interpretation that says that the, the law is good and perfect and Christ is there to make us conform to that. I think we see both of those interpretations played out in the film either in Bueller, who seems totally free from the law entirely, or from Rooney, who is a disciplinarian meant to make people conform to the law. I, I think we can do a little bit more of an intricate understanding. I think we can get a more intricate understanding of sin. And I, I, I would then fold this Galatians passage on top of Romans 7, where Paul famously gets into his own head or into the head of the sinner, some rhetorical sinner, where the law is holy and the commandment is holy and just and good, 
Did what is good then bring death to me? By no means it was sin working death in me through what is good. Which is to say <laughs> that the the law itself is um, is not bad, even though it can create the effect of sin. The problem is that sin itself can work through even something holy like the law. So the people who are in the exercise of the law can also be channeling their own internal sin and using it for malicious ends. And I, I think that's what we have here. We have Rooney's core sin, which is, I don't know, jealousy or envy or arrogance or pride, and his sinfulness is working through the application of a good law. I mean, I think we would all agree that people should go to class, um, but it warps it into something considerably worse and more punishing. So that's that's kind of where I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about it too with the ways in which churches love laws and rules. Mine does. I'm sure yours does. But I, I, I think that we always have to be aware that our own pride and arrogance and conceit can get into those laws and try to twist them and pervert them and do stuff with them that they were not, um, that, that they're not meant to do under the care of God's grace. So. Right. And I, I mean, I'm reminded of Niebuhr's particular theologies that talk about all of the ways in which the human structures and the ways in which we begin to set up social structures so easily move into the, de into the demonic realm that there isn't anything that has the imprints of human hands that isn't also constantly in danger of becoming levied towards demonic way in, in towards demonic ends. And so even something like the law, which as Paul says, like you said, is good, uh, can be taken and made to oppress people. Similarly, like democracy might be good, but it has uh, the demonic within it. And so, I mean, considering that idea, let's, I wanted to talk about a real demon that shows up in Luke. Uh, the Gerasene demoniac, I think, is such a really interesting story. And I think it, it, it ties into a little bit of what you're talking about right now, Matt, which is this Lucan passage, Luke 8. Luke 8 is like a force, first of all. It, there are so many important stories and, um, and how they all fit together and the way that Luke weaves these themes together are, um, are really remarkable. There's a number of parables at the front of um, the chapter. And then Jesus stills the storm as the disciples cross the Sea of Galilee. And directly after stilling that storm, he meets this other storm, this, this demoniac who has, you know, a legion of demons inside of him. And I think... Um, Luke is making this interesting theological point where he stills the natural order, but he can also still the spiritual order simultaneously. And, uh, and then directly after this passage is this moment of Jairus and Jairus's daughter and then the woman with the flow of blood. So Luke 8 is just chock full of really valuable and I think um, deep stories. What stood out to me in the Gerasene demoniac reading this week, especially as I watched it through the lens of Ferris Bueller is that there is this sort of psychic state of health that um, that everyone recognizes as dangerous. So Cameron is always sort of being contrasted with this beautiful day, right? Like they're going out and they're doing these amazing things and Cameron still is a little black rain cloud. And we're all wondering, can the new day break through Cameron's vision of the world? Um, earlier, you noted, Matt, that, that, that Cameron finally allows grace to work. And I think that's a wonderful way to think about this Luke passage. There's a moment after Jesus heals the Gerasene demoniac where the villagers come out to see this miracle they also probably come out because all of their livestock has just been um, thrown in the sea. And so um, there are economic reasons that they're coming out. But it's the text indicates that they have some long history with this demoniac, that, that they had to chain him up in caves and that he would break chains. And they see him, and the text says, and they saw him sitting there and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Mm. 
we meet Cameron in Ferris Bueller's day off when he's sick. And he's sick at the beginning of the movie. And Ferris later says that Cameron feels best when he's sick. That that's his natural state. But then Cameron has this recovery. And he knows that, um, that things have changed. And he's realizing that part of the fear that came into his life was that changing means that his relationship with the wider world has to change as well. And so in the car scene, he's angry with his father and he says, I'm, um, I've been so scared. And he talks about being afraid of, um, of meeting his father. And I think at the center of the pathos of that scene is that overwhelming fear that comes when health meets us, right? Mm -hmm. Sometimes we're more afraid of being healthy than we are of being sick. And I think that we see that in the Gerasene demoniac story. I think the Gerasene demoniac is in his right mind, finally. And then the villagers who come out to see him, the people who've told stories about him, who watched him break chains, see him finally well, and they're afraid. And that just strikes me as so fundamentally human. You know, like, what happens when the alcoholic father finally gets clean? Well, the family gets really afraid because everything has to change at that point. Um, and then finally, at the end of the story, he makes this request to Jesus that he wants to go with him to cross the Sea of Galilee back into um, back into the Judean countryside. And Jesus says no. And it's a totally tragic part of the mo of the story. Because Jesus seems to say yes to everybody in this, uh, in this passage. Jesus says yes to Legion when he has to be thrown into pigs. Jesus says yes to the, uh, to the, uh, the townsfolk when they ask him to leave. And then finally, this man comes to him and says, well, take, take me with you. Which seems totally reasonable considering the people who chained him up in a cave actually don't seem to want him around any longer. But then Jesus says, no, you got to go back to this community. You have to go back and confront these people. And I see in Cameron this moment, too, where he takes responsibility. At, at one point, Ferris says, I'll do it. Like, I'll take this on me. And you get the sense that Ferris has all of the necessary skills to sort of even wiggle out of the punishment that would come from destroying this car. And you have no indication that Cameron has any of those skills, but Cameron is actually doing something that is truly courageous at that point, which is he's going back and he's going to try and make the relationship right with the people who have wronged him. And so I, I see in the Gerasene demoniac, this, this, this moment where, seeking health, seeking the best parts of the law can freak everybody out. And I think Paul is noticing that that too, which is we we are on the we have this tendency to want to remain sure of the decisions we made. But when good things happen that change and expose our inner uh, motivations, that we would have the courage, like Cameron has, to be wrong. So that's what I got. What do you think? I think it's interesting that Cameron shows no discernible signs of actually being physically sick once he leaves his house. Right. <laughs> so, like, the, you know, the opening shot in his room is really striking with, like, just empty bottles of NyQuil everywhere and, like, just, just all the signs of being totally um full of phlegm and mucus and gunk and as soon as he walks out i mean the next thing he's doing is a vocal impression over the phone where he's right where he's doing the impression of 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 sloan's dad right so like clearly his throat was not 
horribly rendered. And actually, he's. I, I think I think it speaks to your point too that the the film has almost no respect at all for his um, sense of being physically sick. That it's something broader and more emotional and spiritual that's manifested itself that the film is actually going to work on over time. Yeah, it's a, it's an outward manifestation of this sort of inner turmoil of Cameron. He is his own storm, you know. Yeah. And um, and what's interesting is, you know, the I mean, if we're gonna get really allegorical, it's interesting. Oh, to we've me been there, it, Adam. We've I, been there for a while. <laughs> it's interesting to me that that you know, on the one hand, you have the demon sort of running off a cliff, and then you have the car sort of falling off of a cliff as well, more or less that, um, that in some ways the, the spirit of discontent, this, the, the troubling spirit, um, was sacrificed. And in doing so, it left not a shell of a person, but, um, the, the necessary space for the person to re-inhabit their own life. And um, and I, I think it's so it's so important that he doesn't just dent the car. The car yeah. has to go. The car yeah, has to die. And I, I, I was I mean I, to, if I wanted to go back to like to this to the Sabbath idea, you know there's a there's an economic critique inside the Sabbath idea too, which is that part of Sabbath is to um, Part of the biblical understanding of Sabbath is to prevent exploitative labor practices. We see it particularly in Amos, where he chides the local merchants for not observing Sabbath, and in so doing, they are um, taking advantage of uh, underpaid and exploited uh, uh, labor force. And I-, I think about it in terms of our modern understanding of Sabbath, which, especially in kind of contemporary church circles, tends to be super consumerist like the sabbath that i need is to take these few hours off and netflix and chill or whatever it is something or not look at my phone right it's like right yeah to to make alternate consumerist decisions for a space of time and call that restorative sabbath but the the biblical conception is based on a kind of economic interrelatedness of a community that sabbath is supposed to lift up especially those on whom the community is most dependent. And so one of the things I like in the film is that the right relationship that we hope for between Cameron and his father is based on a kind of economic rearrangement where he has previously loved the car. Who do you love? You love a car. And we're not going to let you do that anymore. You can't love the car anymore. You may not be able to reconcile with your son, but there's going to be an economic turn in here. I don't think the film does much. I I don't mean to say that it's um, launching a Marxist uprising. I don't think that's true, but I do like that one little moment of what the car becomes at the end. Well, I think that's a good segue. Let's talk about our last segment. This is called Postludes, and it's just a chance to get another little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or we're following. So Matt, what's your postlude for the week? So I want to direct you all to a great article in the AV Club from a couple of weeks ago by Sherilyn Johnson on uh, what's missing from the late show with Stephen Colbert. And the, Colbert's late show is not done great in the ratings since it debuted. It's held its own okay, but it has it seems not to have carried with it from Comedy Central to CBS the kind of cultural weight that he once enjoyed on Comedy Central and one of the things she points out is that uh, in CBS's online engagement with this show, uh, Colbert is more or less missing, that they will run viral videos put on by staff members or writers or whatnot, but that Colbert's presence has kind of disappeared from the mm-hmm. online engagement, uh, even from you know his own Twitter feed that used to be kind of a must-follow and has kind of gone a little dormant. And, and I, I want to expand on that and think that I, I say that I think in a kind of ironic way he's missing from the show too. 
And then that's ironic because in theory, this was supposed to be the place where you would get real Stephen Colbert because previously he had been Stephen Colbert, fake conservative blowhard. But there's something that's missing where he now seems more removed and um, less charismatic and less authentic than he previously was, even though he is no longer espousing political stuff that I don't think he fundamentally agrees with. But there's something about the Colbert rapport that allowed him to feel more honest. Uh, I've been reflecting on this in the context of the role of a pastor and preacher in a congregation. It strikes me on one level that what Colbert has done is kind of gone from a pastor-sized church to a program-sized church. So in a pastor-sized church, you know, the relationships and the movement of the church and the the direction of the church, kind of all relationships flow through the pastor. And a lot of it is based on personality and charisma. And um, and those kind of one-to-one relationships are what make the engine of the church go. On uh, a program-sized church, you have a, a larger congregation that does more things independently. And the pastor functions more as manager and less as the driver for any individual event or program. And I think Colbert is kind of in a program-sized church, and I think he's kind of getting lost behind the programming. And and I think it's a reminder, and for better or worse, that one of the great powers that a pastor has is personality. And more so than that, that one of the great powers a pastor has is, is honesty and authenticity. That something... It, somehow Colbert was even more honest when he was faking it than he is now. And I, I don't think it's entirely always comfortable to for us to admit that as pastors and preachers. We want we don't want it to be a cult, right? We don't want it to be a cult of personality and we don't want it to depend on us. But I think we'd be remiss if we didn't acknowledge that who we are and our ability to be honest and our ability to bring kind of our authentic selves into ministry is really important. Uh, I, I heard Tom Long say a while back that in preaching, he thought that there was these days too much emphasis on creativity and not enough on honesty. So I just kind of mm-hmm. want to reiterate that. That's what I've been reflecting on, that part of our job and part of our call is to, is to bring ourselves and trust that who we are and who we've been made in the waters of baptism is sufficient for the moment of the church um, where we meet it. So that's what I've got, Adam. Well, I think, I mean, it's interesting to hear you say this. Uh, I'm doing this research on this book right now. And a major part of Christian Reformation comes when people are allowed to wear masks and don't have to speak as themselves, but get to speak as somebody else. And that sort of indirectness allows them to speak into the world in a way that direct communication from our uh, our personal, most authentic self maybe doesn't work as well. And so I'm interested to, to, to see if there's a moment where Stephen Colbert can find who he is as Stephen Colbert, authentic talk show host, that gives him enough critical distance to say the things that Stephen Colbert, authentic talk show host, can say while also keeping some of his own personality for himself, which I think is also a pastoral skill, you know? Yeah, and part of it is, I think, just the challenge of trying to meet and find and cater to a wider audience and a wider audience of of sponsors and corporate partners and all that kind of stuff, too, that just... Which makes your your distinction between the program and the pastoral-sized church, I think, such an, uh, an accurate one, because there are just more interests at play right right and um more stakeholders who have as much if not more weight in the the moment of the congregation's life than you do um right yeah so this week i want to uh reflect on children's stories for a second so my son has so many books we're nice good middle class people so we think buying books makes us uh um noble and so uh does it? So he's i hope, I hope it does books. he's got all of these books but he only reads he only likes to read like four of them 
So it's not as if he samples widely and, you know, dives deeply into his library. He has like four. Um, one of them is the most inane and idiotic book called Busy Boats. And Busy Boats is written in the stupidest end rhyme. And it feels like some half-assed children's writer wrote this thing in 25 minutes. And it's all about different types of boats. And the end rhyme is awful. The other book that he really loves and that we read frequently is uh, The Stories of Frog and Toad by Arnold Lobel. And where Busy Boats is inane, Frog and Toad is deeply profound. And so each night when I'm reading to my son, there is this moment where I don't know if he's going to choose Busy Boats or if he's going to choose Frog and Toad. And I'm always praying for Frog and Toad. And uh, there was an article uh, online on the New Yorker site this week by Colin Stokes called Frog and Toad, an Amphibious Celebration of Same-Sex Love. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and it's it's not exactly what you think. Uh, Ar Arnold Lobel wrote these books in the 70s, and Frog and Toad are more or less lessons in friendship. They uh, are stories that involve generally two characters, Frog and Toad. If there's another character, they play very minor roles, but more or less it's small little stories that are erupting from the life of these two people. Um, Last night, I was reading one in particular called The Dream, and in it, uh, Toad is having a dream. And Frog is watching Toad do all of these amazing theatrical feats. And as he does these feats, and, the, and as their, uh, uh, his ability to do these feats grow more complicated, this disembodied voice trumpets the feats of Toad, and then Frog begins to shrink. And then in time, Frog is gone. And then Toad realizes that his audience is gone. And what good are his accomplishments if he can't share them with his friends? Or even more complicated, what happens when your accomplishments begin to diminish the persons you love around you? And that your desire and need to do something great and huge and miraculous compromises the friendship to the person you love most. The books are amazing because Ta Toad is forever and always in love with Frog, and likewise Frog loves Toad. And it might be, like Colin Stokes says, the sort of same-sex love uh, in the amphibian world. But I think it's also this compelling portrait of friendship it's this amphibious filio friendship. And it might be more. Who knows? That's the thing. I think adulthood really compromises those friend-making muscles that are so strong in our youth. Those totally atrophy at some point. And so it becomes very hard to make friends without um, feeling like friendship is also wrapped up in some sort of sexuality. And yet Frog and Toad have a deep and lasting friendship that um, that I find totally compelling. And there are, there are many nights where I hope uh, and pray that my son might also experience uh, a level of friendship that is, that is this deep. And it comes in very simple verse and in very simple prose. And yet I go to sleep thinking about Frog and Toad regularly. So if you want to think about Frog, Toad, friendship, how, how to engage and make friends within your churches, how to um, compel people to think more um, in, in ways that are less self-serving and, um, and begin to serve the community, I commend Frog and Toad by Arnold Lobel. So that's what I got. Thanks, Adam. I in our in our relationship, Adam, which one of us is the frog and which one of us is the toad? Well, so here's the wonderful thing about them is that they actually do have personalities, even though the stories are very simple. 
Toad tends to be fussy and a little bit of a grump. So maybe me, I think I'm the more nihilistic of the two. Um, Frog is more adventurous and optimistic in the world and creative. So I don't know. I don't. We might both be Toad. We might both be Toad. We might. We might need to find. We might need to outsource a frog. All right. I think on that note, we should wrap up this episode, but we are not quite done yet, Adam. Uh, next week, we have another special guest joining us, Jessica Griffith. And here by the magic of nonlinear editing, she is here to tell us about herself and her pick for our next conversation. Hi, this is Jessica Mesman Griffith, author of Love and Salt and co-creator of the online spiritual community, Sick Pilgrim at Pathios.com. Next week, I'll be on Technicolor Jesus to talk to Adam and Matt about The Babadook. Written and directed by Jennifer Kent, it's a horror movie about a bereaved widow and her troubled young son and the evil entity that won't let them rest. C.S. Lewis once complained that no one ever told him that grief felt so much like fear. I'll be talking about the ways we as Christians try to avoid, ignore, medicate, and cast out our grief, when maybe what we really should be doing is learning to live with its shadowy specter. Great. I haven't seen that movie, and I've been meaning to see it, and it's about time that we entered into the, the horror genre, much to your dismay, Matt. Yeah, it is much to my dismay, but I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to having watched it. I'm not sure that I'm looking forward <laughs> to watching it. <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 my wife has promised that she is going to leave the house while it's on just in case it like leaves the screen and terrifies us so anyway it'll be good i'm looking forward to it yeah I guess. likewise well thanks for listening everybody and don't forget to subscribe to the show on itunes if you like it leave us a rating there it helps other people find the show tell a friend visit us on our facebook page or on our web page at technicolorjesus.com Every little bit helps other people find the show. That's it for today. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Adam. Are y'all playing basketball? Get me on the court and I'm troubled. Last week, messed around and got a triple-double. Freaking brothers every way like MJ. I can't believe today was a good day. Are you still here? Podcast is over. Go home.